3: Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, your podcast that is expertly introduced every single time by Margaret Kiljoy, who is me. me. And in particular, I also want to introduce Caitlin Durante. I don't know why it's in particular. I really proved to lie about the first thing that I said. Uh, but hi, Caitlin. How are you? Please Hello. save me.
4: Oh, it's uh, here I come to the rescue. Uh, Caitlin, in particular. <laughs> <My> new name. <laughs>
3: Caitlin is the host of the Bechtel Cast, where they talk about movies, but they're not allowed to talk about men and who are in the movies because yeah,
4: yeah, and it's a the real only one challenge. who's ever made this joke because <laughs> <'cause laughs> every movie is about men, so we yeah, kind of really say like five words to each other, and then we have to end the episode.
3: I don't you know what else I can talk to women about mm. besides men. Oh, there's a bunch of men in this episode. Last Monday had. Well, whatever. There's also some women in it. (laughs) So, including Sophie. Hi
5: Sophie.
3: Sophie's the producer. Yep. Ian is our audio editor who can't say hi. Hi Ian. Hello. On woman did our theme music. And this is part two in our Deriv through Surrealism, which will piss off some situationists somewhere because the Situationists didn't like the Surrealists and they're the ones who invented the concept of derive, but it was based on the Surrealists. That's not what we're talking about today. Mm. Last time we talked about a bunch of shit they did in World War II because I figured I'd start with some of the action. This time I'm going to start with their precursors. I'm actually not going to... I'm just going to talk about some people who inspired them because mm. they ins- some of them inspire me too. Some of them I don't like. Yeah. So, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. In one of the last episodes we did, not me and Caitlin, but me and Sophie, we talked about John Henry, the guy who beat the steam engine, right? And uh, actually it was... Wait, I want to ask, I ask everyone this now. Did you know that John Henry was a real person?
4: I, mm, I mean... (laughs) It's a pretty generic ass sounding name. So Oh, the like would... the guy who
3: beat the steam engine in the song. Maybe this is the different oh, rocks we live under.
4: I don't know this reference.
3: Okay, never mind. There's this like myth about the like like John Henry's a steel driving man and he's faster than any machine and he like beats uh, the steam drill oh, and then he dies. Okay.
4: Right. I okay, I am familiar with this. Yeah.
3: Uh he's a real person. We did a whole episode about it. And he was a black convict who went on to go and serve as the model for Superman and Captain America, and therefore all modern comics.
5: Mm.
3: And our guest, Prop, pointed out that history keeps proving again and again that black people invented everything, and he's not wrong. Mm. I have this pet theory that I'm working on, which is that basically everything to cool, everything cool that comes out of the West is based on cool Europeans looking around and being like, oh God, our society is evil and shitty, what is better? And finding inspiration from... Uh, colonized people, indigenous people, enslaved people, and their descendants. These Western folks are desperately trying to counteract the shittiest parts of their society, which plays into the history of appropriation capitalism and blah, 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 blah. But it's also really interesting. And so this is my way of saying a bunch of the people who inspired the Surrealists were Black. Mm. And uh, even though, actually there were a ton of Black Surrealists, and we'll talk about them later, but they're not the face of the movement. I want to talk about this guy named pascal beverly randolph i'm just gonna assume you haven't heard of him because i hadn't heard of him and no one i know has probably heard of him unless you're into like specific occultist stuff i have not he is fucking wild he is one of the forefathers of american occultism he was a sex magician and a spiritualist
4: define sex magician
3: oh we're gonna okay
4: good (laughs) sorry to be jumping yeah no no
3: Actually, in not fucked up ways, I think. That's what's... The thing that's wild is I am describing everything that would be a shitty con man. Mm. Instead, he is an earnest seeker of wisdom who is trying to help people and succeeds.
4: Okay, great. It's like oh, really dear.
3: wild, this story. Um, he may or may not have been an actual doctor. He certainly called himself one. Speaking of things mm. that are very con man-y. <laughs> He, if I had known about him before I started this four-parter, he might have gotten some episodes on his own. He's just really fucking cool. Mm. He was born in New York City in 1825 to a free black mother and a white father. Through his white dad, he may or may not have been descended from this guy William Randolph, one of the founders of the colony of Virginia, which means that our black sex magician who helped inspire surrealism might have been related to everyone from founding father and third president Thomas Jefferson to the Confederate general Robert E. Lee. Some scholars think he made up his pedigree in order to confront racism in his career because
4: racism was a major impediment in his career. Which, mm. like, fair, whatever. Uh, yeah, I would make up all... I would say I have two master's degrees.
3: Yeah, and it's weird because they're both in screenwriting.
4: <laughs> Just from different schools.
3: Yeah, University of Boston and Boston University.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: Um. Congratulations. Uh. We are less than 10 minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Pascal's dad runs out on the family I'm sure race is a factor here the white dad um, his mom died of cholera when he was six I'm sure race and its attendant poverty is a factor here and he grew up homeless in 19th century five points Manhattan which is not an easy time that's like the like bad part of there's not a lot of good parts of Manhattan in twenty-five. <laughs> He taught himself how to read and write and then he fucked off on a sailboat as a cabin boy and a deckhand and saw some of the world. He came back after five years. He worked as a boot black, a dyer, and a barber. At some point, he converted to Roman Catholicism. It did not stick. And he studied mysticism everywhere he went. And then he got involved in the spiritualist movement. I assume everyone has heard Jamie Loftus' series, Ghost Church.
5: Mm-hmm. But in case
3: you haven't, Have you ever heard of
4: Jamie Loftus, Caitlin? Um, I know the name. Yeah, but I haven't. We have never met. We've just we've we've done a podcast together for seven years, but we've never (laughs) met face to face. Oddly enough,
3: and well, one of you is dead and being spoken to by a spiritual medium. No, oh,
4: it's not gonna. It's me. I'm dead.
3: I I wasn't going to tell you.
4: Have I been dead the whole time? Is this the the sixth sense? (laughs) So, Ghost Church
3: uh, is a podcast that talks about the spiritualist movement. And it's like people who do seances and shit that was wildly popular in the 19th century and was actually remarkably tied into radical politics in a way that like I did not expect to keep running across spiritualists as I do this podcast. Mm Mm-hmm. He gets involved in the spiritualist movement. He doesn't stick with it, but he's there for a while. And he goes on behalf of that movement around much of the world. He studies at least somewhere between being a deckhand and working with the spiritualists. He goes to at least Cuba, France, England, Syria, Turkey, and Egypt. Um, And you wouldn't believe how hard I had to work. You might believe how hard I had to work to dig up more than just traveled in Africa and find an actual name of a specific (laughs) country.
4: Right, right as if
3: Africa is a country, which mm-hmm. it's not. Along the way, probably when he was about 25, Pascal married a black woman and had three kids with her. Though it's the 19th century. So only one survives to adulthood. 14 years later, they get divorced and he marries a white Irish woman with whom he had another kid. And both of his wives were his actual partners and spiritual practitioners of their own. And he, I think, kept up with all the kids and he didn't do what his dad had done. And also, I had to look this up. I was like, how did he marry a... New York State is one of the very few states in the U.S. that has never outlawed interracial marriage. Hmm. Um, so it was even legal for him to marry that Irish woman. But he didn't last long in the spiritualist movement because he wasn't a con man. He was probably lying here and there about his past. His black wife may or may not have been indigenous, but was absolutely selling Native American medicine for a living. But he. He wasn't a con man because he wasn't, he was seeking actual trances, right? And he was like, oh, you all are just doing weird shit on stage. You're stage magicians. This is not of interest to me, you know? He was specifically into being mixed race. He didn't love love the way that people exoticized him, but he Mm. talked about how he channeled multiple racial identities and it helped him channel the spirits. He said, quote, I owe my successes to my conglomerate blood, my troubles and poverty to the same source. And by 1858, he leaves the spiritualist movement. He's like, y'all's trances are bullshit. You're faking and you're a bunch of racists. And you're claiming to be activists trying to make the world better, but you're just doing it for clout and money. And Fuck you. Mm. He also, in contrast to spiritualist teachings, he was basically a universalist. Instead of believing that only select souls are immortal, he was like, every soul is equal. Every soul is immortal. At one point, he moved to Boston and declared himself a medical doctor because he'd read lots of books on the subject. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sophie's shaking her head <laughs> now the hand is on the face <laughs> I like how this just as easily could be a setup for someone who just turns into a terrible cult leader right mm-hmm. oh for sure but he's like the the good person one as far as I can tell you know
4: mm-hmm.
3: he set up the first Rosicrucian societies in the US which I had to look up uh, it's an occultist movement that goes back to the early, early 17th century in Europe Basically, they're like, oh, there's like a secret order of like secret knowledge that's going to like set the world right. He labeled his shit as Rosicrucian. He said that he admitted this later because he had a lot of spiritual teachings. And since he was black, no one was going to take him seriously unless he gave it a label that like white people were already like new and were familiar with. Mm. And the current order that he started doesn't like to talk about their founder's sex magic. But he goes around and he's traveling, he's forming secret societies all over the place or at least claiming to. Some of them might have been like, I set one up in Denver and it was me and I swear there was like 50 guys there, you know. Mm -hmm. But he had all these spiritual teachings. It was the sex, drugs, and rock and roll type thing. Uh, Too early for rock and roll. But sex and drugs, especially hashish, uh, could lead to spiritual enlightenment when paired with study, according to him. And he's selling all this shit through mail order. He's like, really, I'm setting it all up, right? <laughs> but half of his shit that he's selling through mail order is free. And all of his prices are like rock bottom, like barely breaking even um, hmm. because he's not a grifter. And he seemed to be into free love, not as a, I want to be a cult leader and have a million lovers way, but an actual mm-hmm. women's liberation way, like we were talking about last time. Right. Uh-huh. It's so funny that I'm so skeptical of like free love and all that shit, even though like polyamory is like a fairly major part of, modern queer culture you
4: know right
3: but also has many of the same problems where- i mean
4: well <laughs> that's the thing a lot of a lot of yeah m- like liberating movements can get and have been weaponized against the people who are yeah yeah it's but yeah i, I see what you mean but yes yeah um polyamory all the way yeah said caitlin yeah <laughs>
3: He also was a gender rebel and probably pansexual. He also makes the oldest reference to a non-binary gender with a specific name that I've ever read. Um, Hmm. I'm sure there's other ones, but the oldest one I've ever read. He wrote, quote, I believe in love all the way through. And while I live, I will help every man, woman, and and the betweenities to win, obtain, intensify, deepen, purify, strengthen, and keep it.
4: In-betweenity.
3: Just betweenities.
4: Okay, betweenity. Yeah. I love it.
3: (laughs) I know. If I was non-binary, I'd be like, no, I'm not non-binary, I'm a betweenity. (laughs) Yeah. He also declared that earthly gender was provisional, that your soul itself isn't gendered, just your body on earth, and that God was both genders. Hmm. He also taught both feminine and masculine magic, but that was intentionally the gender of the magic, not the practitioner.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Which, uh, as my weird tangent, is fairly Odin of him. Do you know that Odin practiced women's magic? No. The like, every fucking Nazi's favorite god, Odin, you know?
4: Oh, because of, right, Norse mythology. Yeah, yeah. Stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And he's like presented as like, as if he's like, he's the all-father, right? Although I like the LGBT supportive uh, pagans who are like Odin is the all-father, not the some-father. But Mm. he willingly gives up his eye. This is a complete tangent, but I wrote it into the script because I like this story. (laughs) He drinks from the pool of knowledge. He gives up his eye to drink from the pool of knowledge. He learns satyr, which is women's magic. And it's also the magic of men who take the submissive role with other men. Because all throughout history, we run into this thing where instead of like there being a stigma against men being gay... There's a stigma against men being the receptive partner in sex. Um, mm-hmm. This tangent brought to you by Margaret's ADHD. The yeah. Pascal. <laughs> he also wrote, quote, it don't follow that all who wear the penis are in soul true males or that a vagina is the sign of womanness. Which pushes him so the fuck far ahead of his time from a sexology point of view. Seriously. He skipped several steps. I was, like, reading, like, some people were like, oh, he, like, predated the inversion theory of, late ni- late 19th century stuff. He didn't. He he skipped that entirely. He went to fucking Mm-mm. modern trans
4: theory. <laughs> yeah. He rules. That's awesome.
3: By doing sex magic, the stuff he taught, he promised people better sex, better health, women's liberation, and also the kids you make during sex magic will be smarter. <laughs>
4: So, wait, okay, I still am not clear on the definition of sex magic and sex magician.
3: I am not as versed on this because most of the time when I meet someone who describes himself as a sex magician, I um run screaming the opposite direction. <laughs> sure. Uh, which is not fair to many people who practice all kinds of shit that are as cool and, like, enriches people's lives. I just distrust men. But... I believe overall he's like turning, talking about turning sex into ritual and um, like working on like consciously developing like other ways to have sex and like be very conscious about sex. That's my inference. I don't actually, he wrote like 40 some books and I mostly just read about him instead of like reading his books.
4: Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's time to read 40 books. (laughs) You know, I certainly not me. I'm busy playing Zelda.
3: Have you started the new Zelda?
4: Yeah, I just did like four days ago and I've done nothing else.
3: I'm surprised you didn't cancel this week's uh
4: I honestly was like I was like, can I get away with playing the game while I'm recording? <laughs>
3: <No>. <laughs> I mean, I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3 right now, but that's different.
4: <laughs> For sure, sure. <laughs> um no, but I, I took I took time out of my busy Zelda schedule to talk with you. You're welcome. I appreciate
3: it. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So his slogan, tied to his dislike for church and traditional marriage, was, quote, love forever against the world. Um, And he believed that as we learn to unlock ourselves, we'll be able to bring in a new world, a new epoch of human history. And this is where he starts getting kind of surrealist, right? Um, Hmm. And he's also, he has like two very different lives. He has like himself as a sex magician and a traveling Actually, oddly, not a con man doing all the same things that con men do. (laughs) And then also he was an abolitionist and he was involved in political stuff. And like Mm -hmm. largely the two didn't affect each other, right? Like he didn't hide (laughs) them, I don't think. But he he was all about abolition. This is pre-Civil War. He's going around touring the South, talking about abolition, spending a lot of time in New Orleans, hanging out with voodoo priestesses. And like being a free black man from New York and voluntarily going to the South is like brave as shit.
4: Very dangerous.
3: He took a gradualist rather than revolutionary stance, which tended to offend his fellow abolitionists, um, for for good reason, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he had more skin in the game than I did do or whatever. You know, I'm not trying to... Some people didn't like him in sure. the abolitionist movement. During the Civil War, he spent his time recruiting black soldiers for the war. Uh, he was already in his 40s, and I don't think he fought directly himself. Mm. After the war, he spent a lot of his time in Louisiana teaching thousands of black people how to read and write through the Freedmen's Bureau schools. Um, During a time when white racists were attacking every black person and white Republican they could find, he lived there during the New Orleans massacre of 1866 in which probably 50 black people and three white allies were killed by a racist mob. So he slept with pistols under his bed as the death threats came in for his daring to teach black people how to read.
5: Hmm.
3: He wrote, quote, If hell is any worse than New Orleans, I pity the damned. (laughs) He was a good writer. Yeah, He got a little millenarian after that. He predicted a great apocalypse was coming, that the white people would give the Southwest to black people, and he would march off towards their Zion with them. He lectured and wrote extensively about black rights unrelated to his occultism. He formed the National Equal Rights League. His other personal motto was, We may be happy yet. And it applied to both of his interests, magic and emancipation.
5: Hmm.
3: And I, one of the reasons I like him so much is he's like a, he's a seeker, right? He's someone who wasn't convinced there was, he wasn't convinced he was right, but he explored spirituality to the best of his knowledge. And he wrote, he wrote shit that contradicted his previous shit as he like changed his mind, as he like learned new things, right? Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And that's cool. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. He believed in the spirit realm and he believes that our souls are its like not totally dissimilar from the big bang kind of, even though that wasn't developed scientifically until the 20th century, Mm -hmm. basically that like the thoughts of God have spread out all over the galaxy falling like dust onto certain worlds where they slowly Mm -hmm. collect into geological formations, plants and non-human animals before eventually they might become human souls. Mm -hmm. Then when you die, your soul returns, um, not to the dust, but instead travels to the spirit realms, which are, sometimes he writes about them as being around planets, galaxies, or beyond space itself. And it depends on how enlightened this particular soul is where you end up. In his earliest writings, with his internalized racism, he says that the white souls are the most developed and they're going to end up like in the coolest spirit realms. By the end of his life, Mm. it's people of color, not just black people who are the most developed and are in the coolest parts of space and white people who are (laughs) damned. Mm -hmm. or have more to more development to do Mm -hmm. uh it's just not inherently wrong through study and drugs and sex one could drop through the outer world into the world below into the spirit realm which he sometimes conceptualizes under the earth and other times as the interior of one's own soul because inside of us are microcosms of the universe uh and yeah he he lived his life and he did that shit. Nice. In July 1875, at the age of 49, he died. He most likely shot himself in the head with a revolver. Um, Mm. He was destitute, and he was resentful of the white occultist world continuing to ignore him. A friend and fellow occultist on his deathbed claimed to have killed Pascal during a fit of temporary insanity. But it's likely that this later confession is a lie. Um, Mm. It's likely that he took his own life. And, yeah... his wife continued to publish his works. He published 45 books and pamphlets while he was alive. (laughs) And all of the big occult groups after he died uh, drew on his legacy because black people invent everything. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: And the Surrealists also drew on this. His writing about the unconscious world seeping into the conscious world in particular influenced them. But a lot of the information about black influences on the Surrealists didn't start being acknowledged until the later incarnation of the Surrealists in like the 60s or whatever. And we'll we'll get to that at some point. But what we're going to get to first is uh, what's something good we can be sponsored by? Books? But libraries.
4: Plus books, yeah.
3: Yeah. Everyone listening should write at least 40 books in their life. Mm -hmm. If you don't, what are you doing? Why are you alive?
4: <sighs> Loser alert.
3: Yeah. That's definitely to be taken seriously. And just like you should take these ads seriously. <laughs> Here's some ads.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year
4: could
1: just be a me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
3: And we're back. And we're talking about how awkward it'll be if I ever have to do host red ads. But anyway, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> More influences. The Surrealists are all about automatic writing, right? Uh, letting the unconsciousness, like, like, hey, God, take the wheel, only without God. You know? Yeah. Hey, dream take the wheel
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, and produce stuff and if that sounds like improvisational music like jazz
4: jazz that's not mm-hmm. a coincidence
3: as far as I can tell history is uh, the west is like the only place that's ever been really super whatever it's the only place I've found that has been super obsessed with like music should be written down and performed exactly as it's written and this is even only the, the recent west mm-hmm. um, which leads me to a tangent <laughs> <laughs> okay there's this Finnish instrument called the kantale It's a kind of zither. I've made a couple of them. I think they're really cool, and I like playing them. And I listened to an interview with a traditional cantilé player, and he was like, well, the traditional way to play this instrument is to sit in the corner of the house, probably drink, have your dog sleep on your feet, let that rest of the house do their own thing, and then make up whatever you want as you... (laughs) and just, like, fuck around on it. Yeah. And it's not about playing specific compositions. It's about uh channeling right it's about improvisational music everyone has known this forever with the exception of western europe during some certain time period but the surrealists are from western europe in that certain time period so improv improvisational playing this is like a fucking epiphany right (laughs) jazz is imported from the u.s in part by black soldiers from the u.s during world war one uh and the Surrealists are super into veteran of the pod Josephine Baker, the black superstar who moved to the France, moved to France, fought Nazis, and had a pet cheetah. Whoa. Yeah, she's real cool. You should check out that episodes <laughs> about her. There's another jazz musician in particular who influenced them, though not right at the beginning. Um, and so he's it's, it's not really a precursor. He gets called a pre- precursor, but I think people are playing a little fast and loose with history sometimes. Mm-hmm. Thelonious Monk, who basically was this like, He was born in North Carolina in 1917. He learned all the Western greats on piano. And he was like, no, I'm good. I like jazz. And his quote is, the piano ain't got no wrong notes. And he revolutionized piano playing. He also got involved in the civil rights movement. And he inspired the fuck out of the Surrealists. More influences. What's your your take on Edgelords?
4: (laughs) (laughs) I mean... (sighs) I find being I find edgelord behavior pretty irritating a lot of the time as far as just yeah you know yeah I'll leave it at that
3: (laughs) one of the things that really fucks with my head as I read more and more history is that like what an edgelord is I mean obviously people aren't using that word except for recently but like someone who's like edgy on purpose and playing with like dark stuff that might trigger people or whatever out of like shake things up, you know, for its own sake. What that means has been different politically and like culturally, like at different times and like wildly differently. It has been used Mm -hmm. by like aggressive shitty centrists, the far right and the far left. Um, Mm -hmm. And not often at the same time, they seem to like pass it back and forth like a hot potato <laughs> yeah. You know, um, right now the edgelord potato is in the right wing's hands, I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't. So, one of the original edgelords in literature <laughs> is a character named Maldoror. And he is a protagonist of a book from the 1860s called Le Chant de Bount Maldoror, uh, The Songs of Maldoror. Uh huh. I have tried to read it. I hope one day to succeed. My God, it is dense. <laughs>
4: <laughs> What's the name, Maldoror?
3: Maldoror, M um, a l d o r o r.
4: Sounds like a Lord of the Rings character.
3: Oh yeah. Or honestly, totally. a Zelda
4: character. Totally. Not to bring it back to Zelda again,
3: but if Zelda, if Maldoror, the it. character was in Zelda, Zelda would be a very different game.
4: Okay, well, is, and say more about that, please. Well, first I'm going to tell you about A Dog Named Aldor
3: Okay.
4: <laughs> because I've been on a fucking
3: ADHD bender this week. <laughs> I read so oh, many yeah? different books about surrealism,
4: and they're all so different. And I just was like, whatever, I'm doing this thing. I think this, okay, podcast uh, tone, tonally, mm-hmm. this podcast, or this, you know, what is it, four-parter episode on Surrealism, is Surrealist.
3: That's my intention. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. My Surrealist friends in Baltimore had a dog named Maldor. And he was super cool and smart as hell. And this is where I first heard about Maldor. And rest in peace, you good boy, Maldor.
5: Hmm.
3: Um, He was the first dog I ever met where they could be like, go get the following toy. And the dog would go to the chest and pick out the correct toy and come back with it. Whoa. Yeah, his dog's smart as shit. He's also the inspiration for me naming my dog Rintra. because I thought okay. if my super cool friends can name their dog after an obscure figure from literature, so can I. So can you, uh, Rintraw. Wait, what literate? What? Oh yeah, from? oh, it's in the script. I was like, this is okay. where I reveal the the origin of my dog's name, because <laughs> uh, I was talking about my dog all the time. Rintrop is a character from William Blake, um, who is this. I'm almost certain I'll do an episode about William Blake eventually once I figure out the way to make it entertaining mm-hmm. to people besides me. He's a a proto-anarchist who wrote and illustrated. He like did some of the first illustrated manuscripts in the western tradition. Um like thing he's like sometimes called like a precursor of the modern graphic novel because he'd like okay. write really weird theological shit and then draw it too. Huh, um okay. and he was a a printmaker and he like so he engraved it all by hand. He basically made zines. He was a weird mm-hmm. fucking zinester who I like a lot Rintra is the name of a character who represents the just rage of the prophet the first line from his book the marriage of heaven and hell is Rintra roars and shakes his fires in the burdened air and no I can't tell you what that means because I don't understand it but it's pretty (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I understand a lot of the rest of that book so okay
4: that's what's important yeah
3: so back to Maldor the character it is about a man who has abandoned traditional morality in violent and absurd ways. That's that's kind of you know, and it's like there was a time in the 19th century where doing that was like holy shit, someone tried something wildly new. Whereas now you're just like, okay, whoop to do, and you get a little like small flag <laughs> that you like, you know, like this book is attributed to Comte de La Tremont, which is the pen name of a poet named Isidore Lucien de Ca. Isidore read all the romantics or another influence about the Surrealists I'll get to one day. And he was a depressed trust fund kid. So very like the Surrealists mm-hmm. um, who wrote furiously late at night and self-published the book with his dad's money. <laughs> Just very Surrealist okay. of him. Again, I'm kind of talking shit. Mo- I don't know what percentage of the, I don't know what percentage of the Surrealists were Trust Fund kids, but Art World, early 20th century, it was a lot of them. Other ones sure. weren't. And so he wrote this book and he was like, oh, look how edgy I am. But then he started an inversion of it called Songs of the Good that was built on courage and hope and faith, which is the kind of thing that a modern edgelord would not do. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think he actually was like, I want to explore different parts of the human psyche, right? But before he could do that, Prussia besieged Paris in 1870 and the conditions of the city got worse and Isidore died at age 24 in 1870. So... That's the other reason I forgive him this. Whatever. Anyway, so this lords thing is honestly part of the core of surrealism. The idea of tapping into the unconscious and writing things that upend the values we assume have it. Like, it, it has its own value from the surrealist point of view. Right. Yeah. And this is like part of this how the concept of being edgy and, and upending values and morality and all this stuff is like goes back and forth. The far left was doing it in the 60s and early 70s, centered around Michael Moorcock and the creating the, the, hero, the concept of the anti-hero, or rather mm-hmm. popularizing the concept of the anti-hero. True. And, but now it's like the concept of the anti-hero was this like really interesting thing. And now it's just like, oh, of course your detective smokes cigarettes and hates women. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. congratulations. Who's an edgy boy? You're an edgy boy. <laughs> He's so edgy. It's not
4: even edgy anymore because everyone's doing it.
3: I know. The real edgy is hope.
4: It's- <gasps> That's why I love Paddington so much.
3: Yeah. Edgy <laughs> Paddington. Have you seen the <laughs> memes that are where there's like the person who photoshops them into different movie stills? Of course. Yeah, of yes. course you have.
4: I've seen that. There's also, um, oh, what, why don't I remember her name ever? The star of the movie Eighth Grade, whose name is...
3: I've heard of Eighth Grade. I went to Eighth Grade. I don't I know the I did
4: that too. So I'm talking about Elsie Fisher. I I almost okay. always call her Isla Fisher. That's someone else. Elsie Fisher had for a while, she would like change her Twitter account to Evil Paddington. <laughs> and then she would tweet stuff <laughs> that Paddington would say if Paddington was evil. And it was the funniest yeah. bit I've ever seen. Okay, this actually anyway. gets into
3: like some of the things that I keep thinking about while I'm researching this, where it's like all of the shit that the Surrealists are doing or the, the people before them are doing, it's like, we blow through cultural ideas like our like machine for culture is just overclocked now like Mm -hmm. like it's like we used to have abacuses and now we have supercomputers we're just like (laughs) and everyone gets to participate so all of these culture things cultural things like happen so fast and like you know and they're not less good or less important or less interesting than like the surrealists just because like the surrealists did certain things first but they didn't really right but they like you know and like i really like the surrealists but we live in a beautiful strange absurd time where culture happens really quickly and evil paddington is like the kind of thing that would have broken these people's minds
4: right and in, in in our modern world it was just like a random blip Slash a random bit that has come and gone.
3: Yeah, totally. <laughs> but the blip who had come and gone, Isidore, who died at twenty four, wrote this one book, self published it. Later, I think it got picked up by some other people. In nineteen seventeen, when the Surrealist is going to find a copy of La Chante Melodore, and the character becomes their icon. Here is the person who's like against everything, right? You know. He's their prophet alongside uh, Baldier, who wrote the book The Flowers of Evil, which is a poetry book, and who also fought in the 1848 revolutions. And then Arthur Rimbaud, who is a gay author who wrote A Season in Hell and fought in the early Paris Commune but got out before everything went to shit and everyone died, who also wrote poems about Louise Michel, the anarchist hero of the Commune. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is all the cool old edgelords actually like threw down in all these revolutions. So if you're an edgelord now, one, cut it out. It's not as interesting anymore. <laughs> to get into Paddington, I guess. And three, uh, all your heroes were leftists. Um, mm-hmm. Get with the program. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all of this pushing traditional morality had a limit even to them, right? They're like, oh, we like Maldoror who like, and we like people imagining evil and all this shit. And then fucking Dali starts putting out paintings of like Hitler naked and sexy. Mm. And the other yeah. surrealists, he has a bunch of paintings, including like more recent paintings that are like Hitler masturbating or whatever. It's like what they're called. They're too surreal Mm -hmm. for whatever anyway. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: And the other surrealists are like, are you fucking serious, my man? (laughs) And so they ran him out of the surrealist group in 1934 for a while. And then for good, they like put him on trial (laughs) and then decided not to kick him out. And then for good in 1939, when Dali was like, yeah, but I like Franco, but but like for real. And they were like, Uh you gotta go. Like, you're a fascist. (laughs) (laughs) For some straight Dali quotes, just to fucking clear the air for anyone listening. Dali said, quote, we don't want happiness for all men, rather the happiness of some to the detriment of others, since oppression and suffering are primordial psychological, biological, and physical conditions for the happiness of the rest. (laughs) And then I'm going to read an even worse one. Okay, so first he wrote about how the death penalty was like human sacrifice, but but it was a good thing. Oh, my God. And then he wrote that Nazism was a surrealist government and that swastika was a surrealist symbol.
4: Boo. He
3: also, like, vaguely got involved in the Allies trying to fight the Nazis, but not in a useful way. And he wrote, quote, the domination or submission of all colored races was possible if, quote, all the whites united fanatically. Like, he's just, like, actually Mm -hmm. the worst. And I'm going to read one more quote. A bit more brutal than I usually read on this show because I fucking hate Dali. He wrote in a letter to uh, Breton, the surrealist leader-y guy who I actually really like. Dali wrote, quote, I declare that even though I may have a have pity and a negative opinion of the cruel lynchings and bonfires, I admit to feeling real pleasure and considerable sexual excitement in reading about such things and do not intend to censure those who burn blacks alive and lynch them. I consider... Oh. I have to consider the legitimate pleasure that drives these people.
4: Yuck.
3: Yeah. He's a fucking monster. Yeah. (sighs) And I think that that like shows the like limits of the like edginess that they're sort of interested in, right? In the same way that Mm -hmm. Magritte started like painting flowers and shit when the Nazis occupied things. You know? Right. They're like, evil is a really interesting concept. And then when evil is, like, personified in the world, they're like, nope, not that. That's the enemy. Right.
4: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's all, like, everything's all about context, right? Totally. And, like, y- to question and challenge the status quo is not inherently edge lordy because a lot of times the yeah. status quo is bad and needs yeah. to be restructured or whatever. But, like, to to be edgelordy just for the sake of, like, wanting to get someone riled up. Yeah. That's what I associate, like, edgelord totally. behavior with. Totally.
3: Yeah. And so, Dali, after the war, he moves to Spain and converts to Catholicism of the Francoist national Catholicism type. And he spends the rest of his days raving about how, like, monarchism is the real rebellion or whatever, like, fucking Nick Fuentes type shit. Mm. and I will argue that Dali was kicked out he was not a surrealist he was the inversion of surrealism he was like the Mm. like the dark mirror of it but you know there's a danger of having edgelord heroes but there's still something (laughs) interesting about Maldoror and we're gonna talk about one more precursor and it's the need to eat food and therefore Mm. advertise stuff Uh, food is a type of stuff Mm
5: mm-hmm
4: just
1: be me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
3: And we're back. We're going to talk about one more actual precursor. Germaine Berthaud was a French anarchist lady. She was raised in a working class Republican, like, left-wing family. Mm. She wanted to get into drawing and shit. She went to art school when she was, like, 10 because she was, like, winning all these awards for her drawing. And then her dad died and she had to as a preteen leave school to go work in the factory <laughs> because yikes this is i mean like frankly this is why so many of the artists back then were fucking like trust fund kids you know mm-hmm. cuz german wanted to be an artist and had to
4: not die instead i mean it it you have to be surrounded by a certain level of privilege to be able to even have the time and energy to create art. Yeah.
3: And, and people do create amazing art and, and, you know, and all this stuff. And it's just it's less likely to be held up in the like art world, you know? Sure, for sure. When she was 13, she fell in love for the first time with a soldier who immediately died in World War I. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was like, oh, war is bad. And then in a factory, she joined the union and pretty much immediately got arrested for giving a speech that was like, I think she's like probably like, It's like teen girls giving a speech. It's like, hey, what about violence, guys? Have we tried violence? That might solve some shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Help things get better around here. You know, so they threw her in jail. She got arrested multiple times for writing different incendiary things. Mm
5: -hmm. By the time
3: she was 18 or so, she joined the Anarchist Union of Paris. And she wrote about how soldiers should desert, presaging that great surrealist activity, being a cool-as-fuck lady who tells soldiers to desert.
5: Mm
3: -hmm. She... Oh, you'll appreciate this part. She took on a lot of debt from rich banks with no intention of repaying it mm. as like a specific class war thing, like as a way to rob the rich, right? Hell yeah. She also lost a lover to suicide, a guy who had been drafted and was like, oh no, I can't, I don't want to be drafted. Killed himself. She had a not fucking easy chunk of life. <laughs> it Actually, rough. It, it never gets less rough, unfortunately, but she's interesting this fascist thing starts happening um, in the early 1920s. Like, it, it hits France like not long after it hits Italy, you know? Um, it doesn't mm-hmm. take over quite as hard. She's like, well, until it does, I guess, during World War II, but whatever. Mm. She's like, I don't like this. This fascist thing is not my style. And there's this guy, his name is Marius Plateau, who runs a far-right newspaper and also the National Federation of the Knights Camelot which is the like mm. far right youth organization of the time. And they're mm. trying to bring back the monarchy. Uh, much like today's. Wow. This is uh, almost exactly a hundred years ago. This is exactly a hundred years ago. The thing we're talking about today. And Whoa. we are now dealing with people who are trying to set up far right night organizations to bring back the monarchy. So German was like, well, I have a problem. And I have a revolver. So that far right (laughs) newspaper he runs, it has an office. On the 22nd of January, 1923, she walked into the building and shot him five times and killed him. She spent 11 months awaiting trial in jail. And the whole time she maintained her guilt. At no point did she make any other claim other than I shot and killed (laughs) that man because he was bad. She's like,
4: yes, I definitely did it.
3: There was a nun there who was supposed to, like, talk with the prisoners, you know, was like, assigned to the jail. Uh, Mm -hmm. German managed to basically convince the nun to, like, leave the convent, I think to be an anarchist for a while, that later she returns to the convent. I hope she stayed Mm. both. That's my, like, personal hope, you know? (laughs) And this trial is a big fucking thing. And this is, like, right before the Surrealists announce themselves by being, like, we're the Surrealists, right? And the jury is, like, you know... Carefully considering the evidence, and the jury's like, "Well, she says she's guilty, but I don't think she did anything wrong." Fuck that guy, and they fucking let her <laughs> off. <laughs> she's found oh, not guilty. Hell yes.
4: Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Sometimes you just have to stand your ground, and then everyone will be like, "I mean, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, good job." Actually, yeah. The rest
3: of her life was not super happy, and I don't want to get into it because there's a lot of mm. a lot of people around her dying and suicide and stuff her trial though it set a fire in the minds of the surrealists her mugshot appeared in like one of the first issues of their magazine surrounded by the other surrealists and alongside some of their other heroes like freud and picasso Mm. and the caption was a quote from baldaire uh the woman is the being who casts the greatest shadow or the greatest light in our dreams and so it's like this is them being like we are obsessed with the woman as muse But the woman as Muse isn't like, check out her tits. It's like, this woman had a revolver and put five shots into the head of the monarchist movement.
4: You know? Yeah. I, yeah, fair. I would, yeah. (laughs) No notes, honestly.
3: (laughs) And there are other precursors and inspirations. Freud is talked about all the time. Uh, It's true that they were stoked about his ideas about dreaming he's overstated as an influence. He's like presented as like the only influence, I think because he's like one of the least political of their influences. Mm -hmm. And then Picasso, and you can go read about Picasso and Freud anywhere you want. So I'm not going to bother. We're not done with this derive. When we come back next week, we're going to talk about the Dadaists, the early Surrealists, and then the living movement that gives the hippies the phrase. Oh yeah. It's Surrealists who came up with the phrase make love, not war in the 60s. And probably, but I can't promise. We'll find more ways to talk shit on Dali, as well as the Surrealist who went over to Stalin.
4: Okay. Cliffhanger.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for why are you always drawing attention to my cliffhangers? I'm
4: acknowledging. I'm acknowledging, yeah, I'm geez, acknowledging your brilliance.
3: Oh, thanks, thanks. It's Important. But if people are interested in your brilliance, not you, Sophie, but you, Caitlin. I mean, if you're interested in Sophie's brilliance, then
4: we'll make space for you too, Sophie. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> My brilliance can be found <laughs> kind of everywhere. I've, Facts. Was, speaking of <laughs> influence and inspiration. um, No, I kid. Uh, but you can listen to the Bechtel cast, uh, which I co-host with Jamie Loftus. And we talk about movies through an intersectional feminist lens. Margaret has been a guest. Um, definitely start with that episode if you've never heard the show or start anywhere you want you know do whatever you want yeah you know be be follow your heart and uh you can follow me online i guess at caitlin durante
3: yeah yeah, yeah. uh Cast is my favorite movie podcast i didn't expect that i would like movie podcasts and i listened to Cast, and Mm. now i listen to Cast.
4: thank you so much yeah
3: Um, you might have a similar experience or you might already like movie podcasts. If you don't like the Bechtel cast, there's probably, you should talk to somebody. You should get... Yeah, you should fix it. Go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah. And if you want to follow me, you can follow me on Substack. I write a new essay every week. Half the time, it's like more personal, like memoir journalist type type stuff and that's only for the people who are paid subscribers but then... Every other week is free content. I write more about history. I write more about politics. I write about preparedness. I swear it's more entertaining than those three. Well, whatever. You hear me listen to talk about history. If you made it this far, you think I'm not boring, I hope. And if you do, also, you should, like, if you hate listening to podcasts, like, that's interesting. But not... Good. Well, who are you? An edgelord? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Which would fit on your knuckle. Wait, would it? Yeah, it would. Don't get that tattooed on your knuckles. Usually I there's positive things. Maldoror would Mm. also fit. Um, but that would be another edgelord tattoo. But it'd be like a pretentious one, which is cooler, maybe. Uh Sophie Mm. Rescue Me. I mean, do you have any plugs, Sophie?
4: Yeah, listen to the four part series James Stout just did about the Marshall Islands on It Could Happen Here
3: and you'll learn that the word bikini comes from terrible things that the US government has done.
4: Listen to the climate change episode, it's really good. If you're going if you only have time for one.
3: See everyone next week. Bye. Bye.
0: Cool people who did cool stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year